As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. We're back. Got Jay Hildebrand alongside me, Jack Benyon from The Race, and I'm sure you can guess the topic of this week's episode, mainly from those who are vigilant enough to read the title of the episode before clicking on it, but also the biggest story in IndyCar at the moment, Roman Grosjean getting a reprieve after being dropped by Andretti's signed up by Hunkos Hollinger Racing to race in the 2024 IndyCar season. So, of course, this episode is going to be dedicated to how all that came about. We're going to hear from Roman a little bit from his press conference uh, after the announcement as well. And we'll also talk a little bit about how this impacts the rest of the IndyCar silly season as well, mainly for Callum Eilat, who uh, left Hunkos uh, Hollinger by mutual consent, if you uh, sort of read the words of the press release but uh it definitely feels like Callum's been kind of moved aside for for Roman to come in here so we'll discuss that a little bit in a bit more detail as well and give you a bit more background on what this move could mean for Roman his future and also what it might mean for for Hunkos and the IndyCar's kind of disappearing midfield I guess which is like the top three to five teams and then the best of the rest kind of mixing it up on any given weekend which is cool to see so JR Thanks for coming back. It's nice to have you. Uh, you've been extremely busy since we last had you on the pod and we've been quite busy as well. We've had a few interviews. Uh, we had Marcus Ericsson on. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been, well, it's nice to have you back anyway. And you've been driving some Porsches and doing some random stuff in your uh, downtime. So yeah, I, I guess you're looking forward to getting back into some uh, IndyCar news cycle stuff here. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that the season is so short. You know, it's like you, you kind of, I think for the listeners or for the audience, a lot of the I don't know the the rationale behind the duration, the length of the IndyCar season, and the the sort of calendar that IndyCar follows is basically, I think, to try not to overlap with football, like the the major parts of stick and ball season, you know, the NFL in particular, which I think I just feel like the, for some reason this season in particular, maybe it's also because. NASCAR and now Formula One runs so long that it seems like by the time the IndyCar season stops, we're like only partway through the Formula One season. It almost feels like yeah, you're hardly even in in the home stretch <laughs> at that point. Um, that it is, it does feel like that we've got this huge gap to fill. Um, but at least we get a little silly season action here. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's still, you know, there, although most of the big, you know, the big ticket items are sort of, you know, those boxes are checked in terms of what we, what we know to be happening for next year. And that we also know that there's a lot more constraints in terms of, you know, the, the potential for there being cars, extra cars thrown in the mix, like weird things happening, somebody coming out of the woodwork to add a car doing this or that basically because, because of the hybrid situation, because of the existing uh, engine lease constraints, you know, we, we sort of know where the entries are going to be for next year, more or less. It does look like for Indy, there might be more than, than we had this past year or more than the last couple of years, which I think is an interesting, basically just because Honda, it, it seems to me just looking at the sheet, that Honda might be ending up with, you know, they're, they're tolerating having another car or two that they sort of seemed like they weren't willing to have. Um, this past year, but, um, you know, so I guess I say all that just to say, you know, there's, there's some finer details of what IndyCar I think is going to look like next year that we obviously haven't quite ironed out, but, um, you know, this is, this is certainly one of the more significant dominoes. Yeah, it's definitely a lot going on. And I think I'd written a couple of weeks ago that, uh, when it was kind of a little bit uncertain as to whether Roman was going to be back in IndyCar or not, or, or where he was going to kind of when it, when it wasn't clear where he was going to end up, basically, because he'd been linked to coin initially, like in the early kind of silly season. And then obviously Hunkos prevailed as the kind of main option. But I'd written then that um, that Kyle Larson was such a big story. Obviously, he'd been on track, um, not since the last pod. He'd, he'd been on track by the time we did the Ericsson pod, but I didn't get a chance to talk to, to you about uh, Kyle Larson. But his kind of, the, the impact he can have from a publicity standpoint was something that at least kind of gave IndyCar something different to what it, it had had with Roman if he did leave. But obviously having him back is a, a major draw for IndyCar internationally with all of his followers and, and all of his fans kind of keeping eyes on the series as well as having Kyle bring in some of the, the NASCAR fans over from that side as well and um, all of the other racing he does as well. So uh, I guess kind of best of both worlds from a, an IndyCar perspective here, just speaking generally. Um, I guess I wanted to kind of start all this by maybe just doing a bit of a timeline of how kind of everything came about for the listeners in case you kind of missed any of the steps or if you're just kind of coming to this podcast being like Roman Grosjean's at Honkos, like how did that happen? Because <laughs> like, I feel like four or five months ago saying that out loud might have had you like in, in pretty deep trouble in terms of like, what are you thinking? Like that is not going to happen. So um, I guess the, we should start with 2023 really and the the start to the season was pretty epic from from Roman I think he could have could have easily been leading the championship after four races really I think we talked about it a lot on the pod you can go back and listen to some of those previous podcasts obviously he was taken out of the lead at St. Pete could have won that race um the Texas race I've, that was a really difficult incident to kind of analyze and I've I even watched it back quite a few times the other week and thought that David Lucas could have maybe left a little bit more room in terms of like taking the air off the front of Roman's nose and I think more experienced oval racer like yourself might have just backed out of that move if, if you were Roman, but also don't think David did him any favors kind of cutting across the front of his, his nose in the way that he did. So I guess just looking at those four races, like you can easily re add them up and Roman's leading the championship. And it looked like at that point that he was going to resign with Andretti, both, both kind of camps making it, you know, pretty, pretty clear that they wanted to proceed with each other. And then it kind of all went down from downhill from there. Um, eight finishes outside of the top 10 for Roman. Not all of them his own fault. I think that stat's kind of banded around as a 
a way to kind of beat Roman, but not necessarily all of his fault. Uh, Detroit is the one that mainly stands out to me where he was in the, he was in seventh or eighth when the suspension failed on his car and he, he went out. Obviously, there's some more high profile ones where he made mistakes like Toronto, where he said the wheel had kind of fallen out of his hand and that had happened before. Um, so definitely not kind of admonishing Roman of any blame in that run. But also I think people kind of use that run to, to beat him up a little bit more than they probably should. But um, just trying to be kind of balanced about that whole situation. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the the sources we have in the paddock at least uh, seem to suggest that a contract was offered by Andretti to Roman. Uh, Roman had signed the contract, but then the contract was not signed by Andretti. That's just what um, kind of paddock sources say. And it seems to be kind of a an accepted story through throughout the paddock. Um, and since, um, I guess last month uh, or the month before even now, September, uh, Roman had posted a statement to say that he'd initiated arbitration proceedings because he'd expected to stay at Andretti beyond this year. So that's kind of where all this kind of falls down is that midfield, that that kind of mid-season uh, run of form, which led to Andretti um, seemingly changing its mind about keeping Roman. Um, Roman's obviously gone into arbitration about trying to, trying to um, uh, I guess, get what he deserves from that contract in terms of uh, financial settlement or, or whatever. I did ask him about that um, on, on the day that we're recording this podcast, which is uh, Thursday, the 2nd of November. I did ask him if there was any update on the arbitration proceedings and he said he didn't want to comment on that. This was a, a happy day for him and the future of uh, Hunkos. So he didn't want to talk about the the kind of the dark days of Andretti and his arbitration hearings. Um, he didn't say dark day. I'm just saying that. Um, so yeah, no, no update there. Um, and yeah, so I guess around Portland, maybe a little bit before Roman kind of knew where things were at at least and had started to look around. Portland was the first time he'd contacted Huncos or, or that he, his representatives had, had talked with Huncos uh, looking for a seat. Uh, and at that point, I think most people still expected him to return to to Dale Coyne, but over the coming weeks from there, it kind of became more and more clear as as time went on. Um, I know there was another meeting at Laguna Seca as well uh, between Roman and Huncos and, and that kind of became the the uh the leading option for him the the kind of interesting aspect of that story was that a lot of people felt like roman would replace agustin because um he potentially uh, canabino obviously he uh, potentially didn't have the backing to to continue in the series and the team didn't necessarily have the backing for him either so there was a a kind of a discussion going on in the paddock between um kind of people who were were close to the situation kind of knew what was going on that that expected that Roman could replace Augustin, but obviously Augustin's uh, backing came in and he got renewed. Um, so that basically left um, uh, Huncos with with Canapino re-signed and then not really anywhere to put Roman. Um, that's when uh, the the mutual deal between Callum and, and Huncos happened. Huncos had a, a team option on Callum until December the 14th. So it was within its rights to, to not continue with him. Um, and has now signed Roman Grosjean. So, yeah, I guess that's a kind of a rough timeline of the situation. And I'm sure we'll get into some more of those uh, topics uh, very shortly. I guess for you, uh, I just wanted to ask you, JR, generally, and you can take this wherever you want to go with it. Um, it's a very open-ended and uh, kind of vague question. But do you think Roman deserves this move and that he's done enough to to warrant that second chance in IndyCar? Um have you seen enough from him over the course of the past three years? Because it's been really difficult to, I guess for every time you look and 
pick out like a positive point for Roman's IndyCar career, you can find a negative to kind of go with it. So it's it's kind of difficult. And I'll, I'll say from my side, I definitely think he deserves another chance. I think he's shown enough pace. I think he probably should be an IndyCar winner at this point and it's quite unfortunate not to be. I think he deserves another chance. Whether a tie-up with Huncos is going to be the right thing, I'm sure we'll dig into that a little bit more in the podcast. But yeah, I, I guess the open-ended question is, do you think he deserves this move and that he should stay in IndyCar as, as, um, even with the performances he's had? Yeah, I guess if I if I was just to zoom out and answer the question a little bit more broadly, like, do I think that Roman deserve, deserves to be in the IndyCar series still? I think the answer to that is yes. And I, and I basically feel the same way about it as you do. I think the the only the tricky part about sort of analyzing that or or uh, you know making a judgment there is is like how do you how do you factor in his overall motorsport experience? You know, like I guess I I think that that's the thing potentially that does count against him in that equation is is sort of like okay yeah he's he's new to the IndyCar series so like if all of the little fuck ups or or mistakes or 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 times where he's battling, you know, it's like combative with the team are in situations that are totally new to him. If they, if like, if that was only happening on ovals and you were seeing some progression of that happening or something, then you'd say like, without question that he's going to get over, you know, he'll, he's, he's still on a path towards kind of writing the ship and getting better at those things and, and whatever. I think what probably you know, scared Andretti away if we were to kind of characterize it that way is it sort of seemed a little bit the other way around that there was almost they they were, I think, feeling like there was almost a bit of a regression going on as the season's happening. And I mean, you could have said the same. You could say the same thing about Colton Herta's season, you know, in some sense that it's like, was this year a regressive year for Colton Herta? Certainly in terms of results, it was um, the but. You, you know that Colton is is a young guy that's at the very beginning of, you know, in the big scheme of things, he's at the very beginning of his career still. still There are still plenty of things for him to learn. Some of the things that he, some of the areas where it seemed like he could have done better, you just, I, I mean, I'm totally willing to chalk those, chalk those things and those circumstances and whatever up to, well, whatever he's going to go through. He's, you're, you're inevitably going to go through a teething period with some of this stuff um, with, with Roma, it's, it's, it's more complicated because, you know, in some of those situations, you kind of sit there and go like, I don't really care that you haven't been in the IndyCar series for that long. Like you've been racing at the highest level of motorsports for more than a decade. Now it just seems like some of this stuff shouldn't be happening. You know, there should be, you know, just some, I don't know, so, some learning that's gone on already that sort of prevents these types of things from happening. And so I think that's that's ultimately the part of Roman's game that is hard to judge and hard to, and hard to just figure out. Like, is that just an unsolvable s- sort of set of things at this point? Like, is that is that is, are you just for sure going to get all the you, you, know, you mentioned there was like a lot of highs and a lot of lows, like there's some clear pros and some somewhat and some cons that at least have been consistent i don't want to say even that they're super clear in terms of exactly what they are because i don't i don't really even think that that's true but you know it's sort of like do you are you just gambling that you're gonna get all of this when you when you sign this guy up um i guess that's that's the thing that becomes tricky about it to me but 
ultimately he's he's done so he's done unquestionably well if you just think about who are the free agents like who are the available guys to stick in a seat if you're in a situation where you think your cars are going to be really good and which i think hunkos now does because of the aero mclaren partnership you know who's a guy that who's who's a good bet for just sticking in a good car and having a shot at some race wins i'm not really sure that there's anybody else on the market at right now today as we stand here today that is a better bet than than Roman Grosjean for being able to do that. I think you, but you gotta be, you know, Ricky and those guys, I think hopefully are prepared for that, not being super consistent over the course of the season, basically just because it doesn't, we, we've not been shown any particular evidence that that's what you're going to get. Um, that's be, and, and honestly, like, as I'm saying all this, like it feels a little harsh on, on Roma, like the Andretti cars were clearly not just awesome everywhere you know i think we're even we are being or i i at least am being slightly just jaded by some of his attitude being kind of a turnoff basically that it's just kind of like dude come on you know there's i and i wouldn't i i i i would hesitate to say that you know publicly about almost anybody but there there were there are times that you're you're listening to the radio and you're all this kind of stuff and it's kind of like okay somehow the communication here needs to change like this is there is just no way and and maybe it's a u.s racing thing but i have like i have never been on a team that you can talk to the team the way that he talked to the team and kind of like have as many outbursts as he was having just when like nothing important is happening and not have that start to rub people the wrong way and have that start to kind of infringe on just the overall vibe and performance and, and everything that's going on. So I guess that's, that'll be an interesting just component of this whole equation going forward. I mean, you know, I think when, when he first got to Andretti, you know, we talked to Colton, we talked, you know, I've talked to Kirkwood, you know, there's, you kind of got the feeling like, Oh, this guy bring, you know, it's, his data's, data is a little different. So that's adding something positive to the equation in terms of the team, the other drivers on the team being able to kind of see what he's doing, maybe pick up, pick up on some different styles and techniques and things like that. Um, I think he's a really nice guy. Like, I don't think he's a vindictive guy. He's not a malicious guy in terms of, um, you know, working as a teammate, but there's also just, kind of the general essence that you have about you when you're operating within the team. And, and I kind of look at just if, you know, with he's, we've got him and Agustin who's still figuring things out. And then all the McLaren guys, you know, Pato, Alex, you know, Malukas, this is, this feels a lot like Andretti has felt the last couple of years of just like, I have no idea how these guys are all going to get along, you know? And, and it's not because I think that there's going to be infighting or something, or it's going to be super contentious between these guys, but is this a group of drivers that are going to all elevate each other? Like I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure that I think that that's the case either. You know, when I, when I kind of look at, cause I don't going in when he was, when he at, when he was, you know, got added to Andretti, I kind of felt the same way that it's just like, hmm, I don't know. This doesn't, this doesn't feel like you're creating 
a super team. This feels, this feels, and so the, the McLaren guys feel kind of the same way. This feels like a situation where just weekend to weekend, you're going to have a number of different dudes that in kind of an isolated fashion are each going to have a shot at different points during the weekend at being race winners, you know, but that's, it, it doesn't really feel like a super cohesive, you know, partnership, I guess, even, even just when you, when you think, and, and that has nothing to do with even the teams. That's just looking at kind of the driver roster um, that you've got going on. So I think Roma, I'm, I'm glad to see him continue in the series. You know, I think that this is an excellent opportunity for him given the McLaren partnership. Um, I guess the flip side of that is I think that Callum was like, it, 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 I got the impression kind of, and this is not from me knowing Callum, you're, you're tighter with Callum than I am, but I kind of got the impression that he just sort of was like, maybe he was relieved to leave. Like, I don't, I, w- I wouldn't be shocked if that's how he felt. Um, but I'm bummed take away any of the relationship aspect of this. I am bummed for him that he's not in this seat for next year. Like, I think all things considered for, for IndyCar kind of, long term and and seeing guys get opportunities that have had a hard time getting them and whatever i sort of think callum on on the aggregate over the course of the season probably would would have done just as well as roma will do in this seat next year cuz i think he's super talented and i and personally i think he he showed a lot of skill even you know he showed a lot of skill on ovals at at places where just because the cars weren't that good, like he never really never it, it never stood out enough maybe to to be super noteworthy or whatever. But um I guess he's a guy that I feel like also deserved a chance. And and uh, you know, I mean you can you can speak to it better than I can, but may end up just that he doesn't get one, you know. I wanna back up quickly just to to jump in on something you were talking about about Roman and how he might kind of fit into the team and um, our friend Marshall Britt from from Racer had asked Roman how he sort of thought this relationship was going to develop in in the team and basically put to Roman that there was potential for for an explosive relationship in inside this team with Roman coming in and and Ricardo Huncos and the guys there so uh, we'll cut over and we'll listen to how Roman reacted to that and how he answered that question now well I try to avoid explosion as much as I can um, but you know, we'll see. I think time will tell. I think uh, I'm I'm aware of all those questions. I think that's a big big talking point right now. Um, we may be surprising good. We may be surprising bad. I think. Uh, I think we um, we'll see. Uh, I'll do my best for sure. My hand on my end, and I'll I'll try to improve. And I think you can always improve in life. And thanks God, I'm not perfect. Uh, but um, I also feel like it, it could be a different atmosphere and feeling and an ongoing relationship uh, with Junkos. So, so far, I've really enjoyed the time that I spent with Ricardo. I uh, got, uh, got lucky to spend quite a bit of time with him in Austin uh, during the Formula One weekend, which was nice. And um, I think we are aware of, of that potential situation. So we uh, will do our best on, on each end. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. 
sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection can get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I just want to dig into this a tiny bit more before we move on, JR. And I think, I don't know if this is going to be a controversial thing or if everyone's just going to go, yeah, that's really obvious. But I feel like this is Roman really finding his place in, in IndyCar. I think this is the I think this is his level and this is the position he should be in for the simple reason that if we remove Andretti from this equation in the sense that we know they're quite inconsistent and they've struggled over the past few years to to deliver consistent, you know, race results. Let's in this hypothetical hypothetical scenario, let's swap Marcus Ericsson and Roman Grosjean last season and put Roman alongside Scott Dixon and Alex Pillow. Where where do you think Roman comes out in that battle? Because for me, there's only one place he comes out in that battle and it's third because he might win a race, he might score a few pole positions, he might perform to a really high level in a select number of races, but there'll be times in that season where he'll, he'll have the odd mistake or lapse in concentration or even if it's, dare I say it, bad luck, which does seem to happen to him a fair bit. I don't think it's the whole reason why uh, things go wrong for him, but it does it does tend to be one of them drivers who gets uh, a bit of bad, uh, a bit of misfortune. But if we're just distilling this down to how good this driver is in this series, I don't think anyone would disagree with me in saying that Roman would finish third to, to Dixon and Blow. And I think that tells you that somewhere like Huncos is going to be Roman's level where... He can, when the car is in the right window, perform to an extremely high level. He'll score some good results for Hunkos when the car is in the window to do so. I think he'll deliver some good performances. He'll also be anonymous in some races and struggle to make an impact with his results in in others, maybe even make a few mistakes here and there. But that won't matter as much because he won't be fighting for an IndyCar championship with Alex Plow and Scott Dixon. He'll be fighting for the leader circle and making sure that team earns a million dollars at the end of the year. And I think on the balance of things... If you look at how well he did at Coin, he 
he scored more points per race at Coin than he did in his first season at Andretti, if I have that correct, because he didn't do the didn't do two of the ovals in the in the Coin season. So if you extra extrapolate his points per race, it was better at Coin, and I think that's because there wasn't this kind of atmosphere of I have to perform every race, I have to deliver to the top level at every single race of the season. He was kind of let he he was let loose basically. You adapt to IndyCar at your own pace. Coin's great for that. We know how good it is at bringing especially young drivers along, but also just kind of like rookies and people who are new to the series, whether that's mechanics, engineers, drivers. And Roman was just left to adapt at his own pace. He scored some great results, scored a few podiums, had some, some he had a pole position at, at, in that, that famous one at the Indy Road Course. And I really felt like Andretti was going to be sink or swim for him. Like he was going to have to match Colton Herter to deserve to be in a top seat in IndyCar. I feel like he struggled to do that over the two years and we can get into as much detail as you like about why that was. A lot of the reason was the first season at Andretti, he didn't like the car, it wasn't to his liking, it wasn't to his style. But fundamentally, he never established himself as the best driver in that Andretti team in the in the two seasons that he was there. So without that being some sort of massive kind of like downer on Roman Grosjean, I, I just think that even if his level is scoring the odd podium or top five Hunkos, that's still a really high level if we're continuing to talk about IndyCar as being this amazing championship that's one of the best single-seater championships out there. Then for us to say, all right, he's probably not a championship winner. He's probably not going to be able to have that consistency over a season like he may have done in his junior career. He's just not capable of doing that or, or doesn't appear to be capable of doing that. Then... If, if Hunkos signs him and he delivers the odd occasional result that they need, then that's fine and that's great. Like, that is good. It's just not it's just not Alex Plow or Scott Dixon. And that's where you really have to kind of work out where you want to rank Roman and what you want to hold him to. And that kind of plays into what you were saying about, I guess, for someone who's been a podium finisher in Formula 1 and has been in Formula 1 for so long, then you'd maybe expect that of him coming into IndyCar to be at that level and to be at that top level. Maybe that's not at this stage of his career where he's kind of at. Yeah, I guess I think, I, I, you know, listening to you talk about it sort of sheds a little light on, I think, part of what I was trying to say, which is which is basically just that I think, fair or not, there is an expectation that he's going to be a veteran, basically, in terms of how he operates. He's going to be a complete professional, that he's going to know how to do all of these things, that he's going to know what it means to work within a team, that he's going to come in and be your guy that's like, Maybe not a you know you you know to be a Scott Dixon is not like a super vocal leader, but he just has an air about him. The way that he goes about his business, he leads by example, and that really sets the tone within that organization. You hear all of these guys, everybody who's ever been a teammate of Scott Dixon, just raves about just being around the guy. Basically, it's not because he's it's not because he's sitting there you know in between sessions imparting wisdom. You know, it's just because he just does his thing the way that he does it. And that is kind of a bulletproof way of it, it has very few, you know, the, it has very few weaknesses. Um, and so you end up that ends up just being something in these organizations um, that that sort of spreads and and it starts to everybody else starts to operate in a little bit of that same way and you just get this cohesion and you know and so i think roma sort of comes from he's done this for so done this for long enough at such a high level that 
you sort of think that he's going to have that impact when he comes to a team. And, and I think, you know, ultimately it just sort of did it, it, whether it can uh, is, is up for debate, I think, but it just hasn't or it didn't at Andretti basically. And, and so I think that there, there ends up to your point, just ends up being these kind of mismatches of, what did we think we were going to get here? What are we actually getting? Oh, there's some surprises that we sort of weren't anticipating that were kind of, you know, so, so we're, we're ex- all the good stuff that's happening. We're expecting all this good stuff. Like we hired you because we know you can go out and do the good stuff. You know, I, I feel like just as a group, they ended up in sort of damage control mode and, and that got off the rails basically. And, and I said this, you know, when we talked about it a few pods ago before the season was over, like when it was clear that there was, you know, this was starting to unravel at Andretti. Um, I do think, you know, teams what from the outside, you kind of all don't always appreciate it, but you know, the, the dynamic between the driver and the way that they come across to their team and the way that they're treating everybody and kind of the, the vibe that the core group even if it's just on that car, that entry has, um, you know, that even entry to entry can be different just depending on the actual group of men and women that you have on the timing stand and as mechanics and who this, who the strategist is and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it seemed like from the beginning, there was a little bit of I don't want to say that it was necessarily that it felt contentious from the beginning, but you got Olivier getting brought on from the beginning, you know, like you talked about in his rookie season, you clearly had this just difference of viewpoints on the setup of the car, if nothing else. Um, And so it just never really clicked on that timing stand. I don't think on that, you know, within that immediate team at Andretti. Um, And then that starts to spill over and, you know, management and team ownership and 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 people like this like you know they they want to get to a place where they feel like they have that where they have like a, a cohesive unit that's operating as as one big steamroller that's cranking in the same direction and so um you know sometimes it's not you know just did, did roman deserve just based on his performance to be out and andretti i think probably not are they going to be happier with Marcus Erickson? I think whether he does better or not, I think they'll be happier with Marcus Erickson. Um, and and so that's just kind of the nature of the beast, I feel like, in terms of how this works. And and it's it's sort of just it's just racing. It's just the business of the sport and the way that this works. Like, you know, we've talked to, we 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 talk at length on the pod about the mindset that different drivers have and how important that can how important that can be when we talk to drivers it's a it's one of the things that i love asking guys about and kind of rapping with them like you know we've talked to marcus about that we've talked to will we talked to joseph like what are the things that you're kind of working on how do you think about the way that you interact with your team like what's your and every one of those guys has a slightly different take on how and in, how involved in it they are what they're are they really actively and assertively doing things are they kind of just tuning in the background a little like what's the you know, it's it's not to say that there's necessarily a right or a wrong answer in terms of what what you're doing, but that same thing is true. In it's just such a competitive environment. The IndyCar series is so like bang, bang, bang. You're going from one type of racing to the next type of racing to the next one. So, you know, it's like you you have 
you don't get in much of a rhythm in the IndyCar series in terms of you, you know, whether it's going good or bad, it's kind of like, you just got to stay on it and kind of like keep momentum rolling to the next thing. And if you, if as a group, you're just not dialed. And I think especially now with the way the championship is and, and with how high the expectations are because of the talent level of all the guys in the series, um, that cohesive bond that you have with the group and, and then that group within the larger group of these multi-car teams it's it's just this kind of intangible thing that matters, I think, more than ever. And so that's, you know, I I, I definitely think that that's in both of these cases for Callum and for Roma, at least in terms of why they're not with their teams from 2023 going into next year. I think that that was that was it more than anything in particular that happened, you know, any any particular finishing order at the end of a race. If you want to learn more about where everything kind of went wrong for, for Roman and Andretti in that uh, relationship, you can head to thehyphenrace.com and read uh, an extensive feature about that. Or you can head to our YouTube channel and search The Race, where 200,000 people have watched our video on Roman's kind of Andretti stint. So you can go and join them and enjoy that video, which you'll be happy to know is not voiced by me. So you don't have to listen to me during that video. You can just listen to the pod that's enough me, get that out of the way and then go listen to the YouTube video which is voiced by the brilliant Glenn Freeman over at the race. You can go in and enjoy that. Joe, I want to take us off piste a little bit, um, obviously still on this topic, but just to kind of um, approach this from an angle maybe other people won't or to think about this in maybe a slightly different way. Something I've been very interested in over the past couple of months to be honest and it's mainly been brought about by Roman but by other drivers too and that's that it really seems that with the rate of progression IndyCar teams making in the off seasons these days. Um, for those of you listening to the pod who don't know, obviously it's a single chassis series, but there are areas of development behind the scenes, unlike other single make chassis, um, single make chassis series out there. So uh, things like dampers, a totally different team to team. They might be using different brands, might be building their own. They're doing a lot of development. Some teams will have whole departments of people working just on the dampers. And then, once you put the dampers on the car, how that interacts with things like your ride height and your aero or it is all different team to team. So you can drive a Ganassi car or a Penske car and you'll get two totally different driving styles and, and kind of approaches. Um, then then the drivers have to work with the engineers to kind of personalise that to, to themselves. I think with Roman, he said, he did tell... The, the race at the start of the season that he'd been struggling last season. I think that was obvious and he'd spoken about that at length, but he went into that a little bit more earlier in the season where he was talking about understeer and that he can't, he basically can't drive a car with understeer. Like it just doesn't, it's not how he likes to drive the car. And I guess this is another thing that kind of feeds into the whole kind of analogy that I was using before about taking Roman out of Andretti, putting him in Ganassi. If, if the car is understeering at Ganassi, then Roman's going to have to work with his engineer to try and move away from that. Like he's not a driver who is as adaptable as maybe some others are. Like other drivers spring to mind as well. People like Simon Pagino, who have a very specific driving style and don't like to move away from it. That's what they like to do. And like I remember Simon saying to me a few years ago, he's like, all right, it might take us a little while to get there in terms of getting the car perfected. But once it's there, I will be as good as anyone once the car is in that window. And I, and I kind of get that. I kind of get that um, that way of thinking because I find it really interesting. Like, 
who's going to be faster over the course of a season, a driver who continuously drives around the car not performing to a high level or the driver who demands it to be a certain way but will get there and then will drive the car in that way. I, I guess what I'm kind of thinking about there is that the the driver who's driving around the weaknesses of the car is not necessarily fixing them. They're just adapting to the weaknesses of the car, whereas the person who wants the car a certain way is is fixing some of those inherent problems to make it work in a certain way. So I guess it's two different ways of going about setting up a race car, how you drive, stuff like that. I guess I wanted to ask you, did that ever happen in your IndyCar career or has it happened since since you've kind of been racing some other stuff and doing some different things that a car just isn't how you like it at all? And how difficult is it then to to change? Because it's easy for me, idiot journalist, to sit here and say, Roman Grosjean can't drive a car with understeer. Like, why doesn't he just do it a different way or like why can't he just change his driving style I appreciate that's a very difficult thing to do but I also appreciate that the IndyCar series is one of the most competitive in the world and if your team suddenly over the off-season makes a huge step forward with with dampers for the rear for example and you have a load more rear grip then you're going to have understeer in the car and you're going to have to deal with that in a certain way or you're, you're screwed basically so how, how from a driver's point of view if you approach similar things like that in the past or have you got any like kind of observations about if, if you can actually kind of break through that and, and, and work with it, or is it just, do, do you get to a point in your career where you're just set in a certain style that you can't really work around or it's more difficult to do? Yeah, I think there's a few things to unpack there, but I th- it's, it's a good question for sure. I guess I think that to sort of answer your rhetorical question or, or to, to, to submit an answer to your rhetorical question of, you know, would you rather have a driver who kind of drives around stuff or somebody who is working towards making it perfect? I think in the IndyCar series, as it is right now, you'd be better off with somebody who can drive around stuff and it's just adaptable to the car in the moment because you don't get a lot of practice. You're, it's a lot of temporary circuits that you, that it might the car might just never be perfect. Like there might not be a perfect setup at some of those places. And so, yeah. um, you know, it the IndyCar series is... And this is not dissimilar from other top level, you know, um, motorsport at this point. But I think the IndyCar series, in particular, because the track evolution is so significant at at this point, almost everywhere we go. I mean, it's it's not Indy Indianapolis is kind of the only place to me that really stands out. The 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 oval at Indianapolis that is basically just like you know what it's going to be like. If it's hot, it's like this. If it's cold, it's like this. Like you don't you know, you don't kind of screw around that much, um, that, uh, you know, chasing perfection is just, you, you need, you basically, you need to be for better or for worse. You need to be able to kind of immediately switch into execution mode and uh, instead of being in like learning mode and just go rip the lap for whatever you can get out of it when you do it. And I think that the other, the other piece of it there is that there are, there are enough guys who are really good at de- no, still knowing what they want and developing the car to get there, but then also being it being a, adaptable enough that even if they don't get it there, they'll they're still able to kind of extract the maximum of whatever that setup was going to give them. That that's really the flaw, I think. In you know, or, or that's that's the thing that's ultimately going to beat you if you're a guy that is you know, maybe more in the, in the Pagano Grosjean like category. 
Um, I think it's worth noting that both of those guys are also just as far as race car drivers generally go, both of those guys are also super adaptable. Like those guys go get another Pagano gets in the sports car and like hauls ass in it, you know, like he's driven rally cars. So is Roma. Like, it's not like these guys aren't adaptable in kind of a macro sense, but that sort of leads into the, the second part of your question, which is, can you make an adjustment? If it's if it's necessary. And I guess in in my experience, the, the answer to that is sort of is is yes, like it's possible to make an adjustment. But for me, like uh, so I'll speak from my own point of view, it has I don't know if I would say required, but it makes a big difference to be able to actually see what the alternative is. So. You know, like I've been in, I've been in the situation a couple of times throughout my career where I really did not think our cars were good at certain types of tracks and the performance was not good at those places, but you know, either I don't have a teammate or I'm just, my teammate and I are both like struggling with the same thing. And so you're kind of like, okay, I don't have the time to go out and completely alter like the way I'm hitting the brake pedal or something like that's not. You know, that that's not something that I'm going to figure out in FP2 at St. Pete, you know, um, so that's that's hard to do. Like if you don't have a, a benchmark for somebody else that's working with the same setup, that's doing a much better job with it. And it's clear that they're doing something different. I, I, I personally have found that to be very difficult like that. That depends on having like a lot of creativity and probably the time and the space to be able to sit there and say, OK, I need, I need the team to not care at all about what our execution is like for a minute here while I go fuck around with this to see if I can figure something out. And it's going to be like magic or tragic. Like either, either I'm going to figure it out really quick or I'm not. And we'll have just wasted a session and we got to like be okay with that. Um, the, you know, so, so the in-between here is, you know, Roman's at Roman's at Andretti, Colton heard a, Kyle Kirkwood, whatever they're hauling ass winning races in an understeering car, you know, in that situation, I think it's, it's kind of fair to at least it's, it's fair to at least have the expectation that you're going to try to do what those guys do or at least, or try to understand it better and see if you can put it into practice. Um, I think if I was, if I was on a timing stand or I was a team manager at one of those places, you know, that would be a conversation that I'd want to have with my guy if that was the case. It's kind of like, okay, I get it that you you want the car to be like this. We've got two other guys in the team who are doing really well with the car like this. We can, there's, we've got a couple of options here. One is we let you diverge and go try to figure this out for you. That's probably okay. It seems like that's basically what they let Olivier and Roman do last year to some degree. Like it didn't seem like there was, I didn't get the sense that they were like, no, you got to run the setup. Um, but, but as we know, also this there, it's not like you, you got to like unpack a lot of stuff in the set. You got to unwind a lot of things maybe to get to that point. So it's not as simple as if Olivier wasn't the guy that was building the shocks at, at coin or whatever. And, or, or even if he was, and they've just got a different brand, like, I mean, this is where the, the damper thing is like total 
black magic <laughs> still to some degree. Like, you know, I've seen I've seen damper traces that look exactly the same, but they don't feel the same when they're <laughs> out there because the the way the damper is built is different. You know, so there's a little bit of this that still is just not you, it's not 100 percent apples to apples unless it's 100 percent apples to apples, you know, <laughs> um, and and so it's a it's a it's a tough rabbit hole. To go down, and frankly, I, I, there's also an aspect of it that it takes a big commitment from Olivier and Roman to say, "I can see that these other guys are hauling ass with this setup. <laughs> I'm gonna not do that, you know. Like I'm gonna completely, I'm gonna, com- I'm gonna do something completely different because what we're doing is completely different. And we have, I have, I have heard it's too easy, you guys. You know, it's too easy. I have heard we're doing something different. Yeah, we're, yeah exactly." But, but, but even in the, you know, if I go back to, if I put my team manager hat back on and I say, okay, we're going to let you go do your own thing. If you want the thing that I always wished I had actually just pressed for more. Like when I was at ECR and we were full-time, we were good on the ovals. We were shitty on the road and street courses. Like we didn't really know why it wasn't, you know, the, it was arrow kit cars. We kind of had like Joseph's data and stuff from the year before, but his, his, his engineer and his assistant engineer had both left. Like, so, so some of the setups that we were left with, you know, the tire changes a little, the, whatever you just go out and it's like, okay, well, this is clearly, we're clearly not getting the same performance that they were getting out of this last year. So what layers of the onion are we like supposed to peel back here? Are we, are we just tweaking on this, even though we don't, we don't really, because the engineer's gone, we don't really know exactly why this setup is whatever it is. So should we be peeling layers back? Should we be adding layers on top? Like what, what the hell are we doing? You know, you end up just in this kind of like, okay, well, I guess just it's understeery or it's oversteery. So let's try to fix that with like the usual stuff Um, that what I wished and we had, you know, Lee Bentham there, who's sort of driver coach, a driver coach for the team and spotting and, you know, giving you a ton of data and a ton of stuff to work with. But I was kind of like, can I, what I wished that I had asked for, like in the middle of the season was like, can we go to the simulator? And instead of, instead of hammering on the simulator for an entire day, just chuck and set up stuff at the car that who knows really whether it's going to be worthwhile or not like I, I mean i can say with the benefit of hindsight that it wasn't like we were getting incredible incredible engineering value out of doing a million days on the sim um like can we just go spend a day i know what my brake trace looks like i know that there's other guys that their brake trace looks different i know what theirs looks like i don't it's not natural for me to like recreate that so it's not going to be something that i can just like pull out of the bag in you know practice one at detroit or something can i just go spend a day in the sim like trying to build some muscle memory for a different technique here in an environment that it doesn't matter um i'd be i'd be throwing stuff like that out to out to my guy roma if he was on my squad and i was sensing that there was a difference in the way that he was doing things like i think you have to because there's no testing there's no other environment where you're going to be given the space to try to figure these things out. And that for some guys, they've just been super adaptable in terms of the way that they make their inputs and do these things from the very beginning. Like they've just made a career out of being super adaptable. I think it's rare that that's like, like that's a rare trait. I mean, that's a, that's a new garden Dixon 
there's like a handful of guys that are just kind of like that. Like they're a chameleon. If you look at their data, like you'd have a hard time track to track knowing for sure that that's these, these are all of the things that indicate to me that this is this driver, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky thing to do, but, but in the IndyCar series at this point, like, I think especially in these situations where you do where, where you do have the ability to see what other guys are doing, if they're being more successful than you doing what they're doing, I, I also think that there's kind of just not an excuse for at least trying to figure it out. And so so those those are some of the things that we just don't really know about Roma's time at Andretti. Like, did he try to do that? Were they just hardcore? Were they were they? you know, hardcore from the beginning that like, no, this is how I'm going to do it. And this is, I know that this is super fast if the car is right. So, and I know from being at coin that we can get the car right for me. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have blamed them honestly for having that point of view, but um, you can, you can see how that would be like at odds with, you know, sort of sort of how somebody else might come into the same situation. Kirkwood just shows up. He doesn't know any better. It's like, I think, I think he probably just the way that he drives the car, I think is probably very similar to the way Colton drives the car, frankly. But if it wasn't, he would just be like, okay, screw it. I guess I got to figure this out, you know? So those are, that those are also the differences between having a bunch of years of having developed a, a set of habits and ways of doing things, I guess. Yeah. There's no, I don't think there's any driver out there who's fully adaptable to either. Like you, you always swing to either side of the spectrum like you're gonna be better with the car a certain way yeah like no question about it and then you know and then the other part of it is like does the car fundamentally have enough grip to go fast or Mm. not yeah you know i mean that's the conversation basically that you're having you know or the thing that you're deliberating about as a team when you show up to a racetrack is okay the car is always either understeering or oversteering does it also have enough baseline grip for you to be and and can you achieve the right balance of the two of those things? You know, to you, you made a point, a, a sort of an example of like, you know, it might be that for a particular team with their general setup philosophy, the way that they get the maximum grip out of the car, the the, the highest ceiling for them is by have having a car that's just got more more rear grip, basically. That that if they if they dial the rear grip out, the car just goes slower because even though it's handling more neutrally. It's not because they've like managed to also add front grip, you know. Um, Can you guess which team that example came from, by any chance? Well, I imagine it was Andretti. No, no. Well, well, yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, but also the the whole kind of like making a step in the off season was Hunkos because oh, they yeah, okay. they made some improvements with their rear dampers last off season, and that Got kind it. of gave the car an inherent understeer philosophy that Roman Grosjean is now going to go and jump in. So that's kind of the, one of the things that I've been assessing with this whole Grosjean to Hunkos move is that well, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, I think that's, that's, this is, a, this is kind of like jumping off on a slight tangent here, but I also think just, you know, you've got Hunkos with this McLaren partnership and then you've got Foyt with this Penske partnership. I think it'll be fascinating just to see like how, how like dialed in are these partnerships even? And the other, the other aspect of this is, and I, I don't, this is not to speak about either of those teams or the, the current engineering staffs on those teams, but like, do you know how many times 
team X has gotten the setup sheet from team Y and team Y is like on the pole, hauling ass, kicking ass, like whatever team X almost never actually just puts the setup on the car as it is. Like they always think, Oh, we can make it a little better. You know, <laughs> like It's like, it was like talking to Joseph this year about, about running to Indy, how they were like, you know, they knew they had a really great car on like the first day of practice and they just kept messing with it. You know, yeah, it's the just car's like, perfect. Let's change it completely. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just this thing that drivers and engineers together do. It's not just that I'm not going to just blame the engineers out there because the drivers are just <laughs> as they're just as like, oh, well, we could do it a little better than those guys. Like we're going to we got to we got to just we got to bury everybody like it's like, no, 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 just take the good thing. And go start to work with it, you know? So, uh, you know, you, it may end up being true that despite a McLaren, a Pato Award, pulsating, you know, neutral car setup, um, you know, the, the Hunkos guys will be so amped about the damper, you know, gains that they found. They just won't quite be willing to let go of that, you know, that one little thing. So we'll see. Well, I think the the chances are that they could that Hunkos could make a step in another direction and kind of remove some of that understeer. I know they've been working through twenty twenty three to try and at least reduce it a little bit, especially on the street courses. That was a a kind of an aim of their engineering staff through the season. So by the time Roman gets there, it might not be a problem. It's just interesting. And if you want to go back and listen to our last episode with Marcus Ericsson, I talked to him about this. The element of not just this as a topic in terms of just drivers going to different teams or driving different cars with different types of, of setups, but also drivers moving teams, knowing about what certain teams are like, because teams like Hunkos might be changing because they're a, a, a smaller team, a newer team. They might not have an inherent setup philosophy that they followed for the past 15 years that they kind of stick to generally and build off. They, they might be totally different year on year. Yeah. Whereas an Andretti, for example, you know they have a secure rear and they tend to understeer a little bit. Like that's just something that's known through the paddock of like this is how Andretti like cars generally um you know perform before they're kind of tweaked or changed by each driver. So I asked Marcus about that because I was kind of wondering what he was expecting going into Andretti, knowing that that's what their cars were like, and did he think he was gonna be able to maximize that? And did that even factor into his decision making from a silly season point of view of like, right, I'm picking my team these three teams don't have a car that currently suits me, but this team does. Should I sign for this team? Obviously it's never that simple of just that one thing being the reason why you move to a team. But I, I, I find that when we've seen drivers go to different teams and really struggle, like it seems obvious after the fact to say, why did they not think of that? Like before they signed for that team, knowing that the car was going to perform that way and it was going to be totally incompatible with their, their driving style. But then obviously so many things factor into these decisions. It's never that it's never quite that simple, but because to be a professional race car driver, you have to be an eternal optimist. <laughs> so it's just, just Scott Dixon gets his ass kicked more than he ever wins. So uh, you gotta just, you gotta just, you gotta be hopeful that, you know what, I'm gonna go there and we're just gonna figure it out. <laughs> you know, um, which I, which you know, I guess probably backfires more often than it goes, and then it goes great if we're really just to to take the take the stats on it but um nevertheless that's just how we are hear that believe it or not summer is just around the corner 
Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. So, Jack, let's just kind of turn this back a little bit to Callum. So, you know, what's what's your take on what happened here with Callum? Why is he out of a ride? That's the other component of this. Roman doesn't end up in the seat if Callum doesn't vacate the seat. It seemed it seemed to me like these were these things were both kind of unraveling in in real time, like in the same over the same span of time, basically from kind of from Indy onward, basically. Um, you know, Indy Indy was obviously a significant significant kind of you know point if we're if we're just kind of to call it that to to keep it simple in this in the Callum Ilot and Ricardo Junco's relationship. Um but what sort of transpired from there, you know, what's happened with him this season and and what do you expect his sort of future to look like in the IndyCar series or otherwise? Yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I think if we're just breaking this down purely on performance and Callum deserves to stay in the seat and probably deserves a, a better seat than than Hunkos, I think it's more, it's more and more the way in modern sport generally that you're only as good as your last race or your last event or your last match or whatever. And I think if we if we rewind this 12 months and Callum's just put the single car Huncos team in its first season on the front row next to Will Power, who's just broken the IndyCar pole record, then you're kind of like, all right, this is like, this is pretty mega stuff. Um, this season's been fundamentally different just because of the car. It's been really poor in qualifying. It's not been something that anyone's been able to fix or or improve on. But Callum has been the best driver in the series in terms of, average finishing position compared to average start position. So in terms of like how many positions he's moved up from his average start per race, he's the best person in the series. Before uh, Gateway, he was the ninth best driver on average finish on ovals, something that he's quite new to. Obviously, it's only second season in IndyCar. Um, he blames Takuma Sato for, for his crash in the in the Gateway race. Um, I'll let you be the decider of that if you go back and, and watch it. Um, so, so yeah, I do kind of asterisk that a little bit with the with with that gateway crash kind of undoing his his average finish a little bit but um I, I think he's just proven as much as any kind of any any of the rookies who've come in who've gone and got bigger seats than he has or ended up in a better team or a more established team um he's done as much as any of those i wonder if the 2023 season has just been like too under the radar like all of his pretty brilliant performances have still been like like they've not been poles or wins or podiums or sneaking into the top 10. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're all under the radar and uh, we, we should be as guilty as anyone for not kind of, I guess, paying more attention to stuff like that, but it's just the nature of the beast that team bosses are not going to get excited by looking back at a season and seeing 13th on a, on a, on a result sheet, even if it's like the best result that possibly happened in that race. Um, It's, that's just how, how things go. I think for, for Callum, if we're talking about this from the point of view of, if if the t- if there was not a team option in place until December fourteenth, then he would have gone and got a different seat. Like he would have been picked up by one of the other teams. the The best team in the series 
has has got five drivers next year. It's signed three, and I'd say Callum's as good as any of those three that it signed, based on the the history of those drivers. So even just using the best year in the series as an example, I think they would have had a a serious conversation with Callum if if he'd have been available. And part of the confusion was this part, part in his contract where it like people are unclear about like was he available for for next season in terms of being able to go and sign him. Like what were the stipulations in his contract? What did they actually mean? We, we know he, like he would possibly have been able to leave Huncos if he'd have had an offer from a top team, but how that's defined is not particularly clear. And obviously none of us have the wording of, of Callum's contract. So it was really the fact that the team left it as late as they did to, to kind of announce this that has left Callum basically struggling to, to find a seat next season, which is, you know, they've decided that, you know, as, as I've referred to multiple times in the podcast, they refer to it as a, a mutual decision. I think people looking at it from the outside will probably look at that and think that that's probably not the case or that they would probably question whether that was right. And it definitely feels like, you know, Callum had already said that he wanted to return in IndyCar and it seemed like he wanted to be at, at Hunkos. I think there's a little bit to this kind of Indy 500 lineage that you kind of refer to and that people have talked about. So I guess the background of that was that Callum was you know he tested a car the the, the pre indy 500 test the car was awful like it was doing something really weird but it wasn't particularly shown up on the data or it wasn't particularly obvious through the data like what was wrong with the car or that you know what callum was feeding back wasn't necessarily exactly what they saw or one of those situations where things just don't add up basically and they were going through practice and callum felt, genuinely felt like they weren't going to qualify the car in the position that it was in and he had to really fight hard to convince the team that something was wrong and that they they needed to change the car basically and they did that on the Thursday didn't they and he did 12 laps before his qualifying which he, he like he put the car in the field and I think it was like 28th but he felt that was like a win he felt that like was the win in the Indy 500 was qualifying 28th because he genuinely felt like he wasn't going to get into the race in the car he was in before and then he finished the race in 12th a, a good progression for him because he crashed out of the 500 the year before um, you know, delivering a 12th place for Huncos really strong. All of the ovals were were strong for Huncos, I felt, this year, or, or at least like some of their stronger events. So so that was pretty cool. I think there was definitely some some tension from from what had happened there, I think, between Callum and Ricardo, from what I can kind of gather. Um it's it's a difficult one. I feel like the fact that Callum was still saying that he wanted to come back in like Portland tells me that the relationship wasn't kind of unsalvageable from his perspective because he probably wouldn't have been saying like I'm coming back next year but um, I can see where people are kind of drawing that conclusion and kind of adding two and two together to say that this kind of relationship broke broke down I, I don't know if the relationship totally broke down but I feel like a combination of that kind of maybe Callum not feeling like he was being kind of he didn't feel like he was not that he wasn't being listened to but that he shouldn't have had to have fought as hard as he did to have his car changed for the 500. And I think he appreciated the the amount of work that goes into those cars and how, you know, how much effort goes on. Like the last thing Hungos wants to do after a whole year of like rubbing on this car and working on it is to like throw it away and put the pull the backup car out. Like no no team wants to do that. And I think Callum understood that. But I think he wanted a bit more faith in in his kind of his opinion that the car was not like raceable in the state that it was in or qualify or like it was not going to qualify for the race. Um so I can see, I can see that side of things where people would think that that part of the relationship was, you know, maybe a, a little bit frosty. Um, the other aspect that I wanted to mention 
uh, in kind of tandem with that whole Indy 500 thing and that that kind of lineage was the the social media storm around Long Beach and Laguna Seca, which was, I think it's fair to say, primarily primarily driven by Agustin Canapino's fans or or at least Argentinian IndyCar fans, whether they're Honkos fans, Canapino fans, whatever. And I've really tried to steer away from kind of specifically blaming only Canapino's fans because I don't think that's necessarily fair. And it, that also for me, kind of feels like it attributes some blame to Canapino, where obviously this is nothing to do with him. It's just a group of people who support him who are also capable of doing some pretty nasty things on social media, right? Like it's not it's not a take on Augustin or, you know, I think he what he's brought to the series has been fantastic. He's got like 400,000 followers on some of his social media platforms. Yeah, you can't, you can't ultimately hold him accountable for this. No, no, yeah. exactly. It's, uh, and and he's, yeah, he, totally has come out, he has come out and... And, and like apologized on, on behalf of them, which he didn't necessarily have to do. Um, but I, I wonder if a combination of, especially like Laguna was really tough, I think for Callum looking at it from the outside because he, he didn't do anything wrong in the incident. Again, um, the same as Long Beach really. And he's being like vilified again for the second time in the year, like death threats and all sorts of terrible stuff being sent to him on, on social media. And that in combination with maybe feeling like he didn't have quite have as much faith from the team as he felt like he maybe deserved or wanted that that probably led to to where the relationship's fallen down and I, th- I think the the trouble now is that there's three drivers out there who will maybe just round up very quickly in a minute if we've got time that have significant budget to bring to the table for for silly season and you know teams that will need that budget or can use that budget and Callum just doesn't bring that so I, I wonder if, if if all this had happened at the end of last season then would Callum's like front row at Laguna and some of the other qualifying performances he had, like Barber comes to mind. There was a few others as well where he was really strong inside the top 10, maybe fighting for the fast six. If it had happened then, then maybe one of these teams just gambles and puts him in the car. But the fact that we're low on engine leases, generally, I don't think any of the big teams can just pull an engine lease out of their hat and just stick Callum in an entry. And I think some of these other teams will be looking at the budget available from some of these other drivers and thinking we can't like turn this money down. Like we've just got to take one of these paying drivers. So um, I guess that's, that's where I'm at. And I think it's, it's kind of a weird scenario because I guess all of this, the lineage of all of this, like Callum versus Huncos or, or whatever, and the whole kind of social media storm around like Callum and, and Augustine has also kind of shone a light on Hunkos and maybe fairly or unfairly kind of made Hunkos seem like a bit of a, like a not a nice place to work or like maybe not the best team in terms of like the the culture. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think Ricardo, from my experience, is a very strong-minded individually as is his ideas about how a team should run. And he's quite ruthless in the sense that he'll pick a direction and go down it. And if you're, if you're not in that, if you're not, working towards that direction then you're probably not going to be someone he's going to have like super high opinion of or like keep moving you up the team or put you in a really high position or or anything like that um i think that's that's kind of grounds to ask how roman's going to fit into that um from a from a culture perspective because we know he can be quite critical of the team at times um but roman you know this i know there's people i've spoke to on roman's car at andretti who love working with him and I found him like really enjoyable to work with. I'm guessing they're the people who are not on his radio, but people who really enjoy working on his car and, and 
like in, enjoy the aspect of working with him. And I think fundamentally off track, as you said, he's a really nice dude and he's really nice to be around. He's fun to spend time with, but there's just times at the racetrack when he's quite aggressive and not happy about things. And whoever is the closest person is probably going to get like an earful of aggression because that's just how he is and how he takes out his competitive energy. So I think it's a valid question to raise, like how are those two things going to match between like Ricardo, his team, how he runs it and how Roman's going to potentially complain about it at times, but also how Roman is going to put up with this kind of like potentially volatile fan base who, if he does something wrong to Augustine, like he's going to like, he's going to get some stick for it. So like that whole thing is like a bit of an eye lot situation in the sense that there's like quite a lot of things going on here. How are they all going to add up and what's going to be the result of all of, of, all, of all of those things adding up? I did ask Roman about uh, a little bit about this in the press conference and he, he referred me to his Instagram, which says that he's, he's hater resistant, I think it says. Something along these lines. He basically said he's hater resistant. So if people don't like him, they probably shouldn't be on his social media anyway. So that's fair enough. Uh, I don't think that's quite comparable with like receiving death threats and stuff like that. Um, but still nice to know that he's kind of assessed this already and thought about it and is like kind of aware of the situation being a possibility um, and as you heard earlier when he when he answered Marshall Pruitt's question as well aware of how the relationship with with Hunkos might develop and he's talked this year about trying to develop himself like when you're in Europe it's very cutthroat in the sense that the person you have to beat is your teammate you have to you don't just have to beat your teammate you have to destroy them and then you move on to the next ladder in the series, like the next junior series is much more cutthroat in Europe, I think, than America, in, in my experience anyway, in terms of how drivers approach things. Um, not necessarily not cutthroat in the sense that they're all trying to get to IndyCar. Like, obviously, everyone's motivated and willing to get there. I think the European championships are more, like, hostile between drivers, um, in, in my experience. Maybe that's not true, but that's my feeling on it anyway. Um, and, and Roman had said it's taken him a little while to kind of get out of that and try and learn to work with his teammates better and um, learn from his mistakes in, in that kind of thing. So that'll be interesting to see uh, a little bit, a little bit about that. Jay, I just want to run through a uh, silly season quickly while I've got you here and for you to kind of pick out anything that you really, really want to kind of address with the kind of few minutes we've got left. So uh, I mentioned earlier, three drivers who've got budget to bring to the table. They're the kind of dominoes now in this silly season uh, situation. So we've got Devlin D Francesco, Daniel Frost, Stingray Rob, um, all of those guys are heavily linked with coin in some way or another. Stingray Rob drove for them this year. Daniel Frost has been linked with coin and tested with them last year. And Devlin Francesco has been linked with them um, at least since May, but probably a bit before that. Um, so uh, I guess at least one of those guys is going to end up at coin in some way, shape or form. Uh, maybe two of them. Um, we've also then got uh, Foyt's got two seats. Uh, we know Pedersen. Well, as was allegedly on a multi-year deal, uh, but could have heard different things in the paddock about whether he's going to return next year, whether Foyt wants to keep him uh, or or not. And then Santino Frucci, the same thing, basically, whether whether they continue with him, um, despite being very complimentary of him. Um, and then the other drivers, I guess we like should mention in a passing of like are going to get the seats that basically don't go to the ones who are paying or, or that the teams take as a paying driver. Uh, Callum Eilert, Jack Harvey... Uh, Connor Daly and Oliver Askew are the kind of main ones that, that spring to mind. Simon Pagano, I'm sure, is on the comeback trail as well and be looking for, for a seat at some point next season as well. Um, 
And then just quickly, since we did the last pod, we've had uh, Pietro Fittipaldi confirmed at Ray Hall in the third seat there. Yuri Vips has had his contract picked up by Ray Hall, but won't be full-time in IndyCar, potentially doing a few races, but more likely to do some sports car stuff. And we know that Andretti is still considering whether to stick at four cars, which could be an entry for someone like Tatiana Calderon, who's been linked with that car for a little while since maybe Nashville, I think was the first time I'd heard that being kind of discussed as a as a team option or Andretti might just stick to three cars and obviously the the loss of a million dollars from the leader circle for Devlin Di Francesco dropping out of the top 22 at Laguna Seca is a big thing to consider for them there so uh, I'm sure well I've already seen people on social media begging Andretti to put Callum Eilert in a in a fourth car there I don't think that's particularly likely at this stage but something that could develop if they're still looking to to fill a fourth seat out of those drivers or teams JR which one have you got your eye on the most which one are you looking at and which one are you kind of excited interested intrigued by what what what's your kind of feeling with 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 that kind of run through well yeah i guess i'm i'm biased by like how any of this affects me for <laughs> you know racing it you don't care about anyone else where's at, the seat for jl hildebrand come on guys next year um <laughs> like i'd like to be racing full-time um the uh i mean uh, you know you mentioned it but you know i've been close to it just kind of what happens with with benjamin is is its own domino basically that starts to set off potentially a chain reaction of yep you know whether that's budgetary issues or or solutions for foyt you know depending on kind of what ends up happening i mean basically it just comes down to money like that's why it's that that's why it's in uh you know there's a there's a question mark there whether he'll come back or not it's just because the the deal structure is such that not because they haven't haven't been paying or something the 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 petersons are you know they've been on the up and up with this whole thing but but basically the deal structure is just like not one that makes sense for the team long term and so that's kind of in addition to the fact that they didn't make leader circle and the performance wasn't there over the course of the year um you know that's i guess why that's in 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 sort of question um so yeah, like it'll be interesting to see what happens there. That potentially affects Santino's situation being there. That changes what you know, if if one of the other pay drivers, you know, drivers that have money end up there, then that also impacts like who the other driver is. Um, you know, so there's a little bit of a potential, you know, that could end up being status quo for next year, or it could be like a total musical chairs. Um, you know, from last year. And then, um, you know, obviously the Andretti thing is, is, is interesting. Um, you know, just whether they run a fourth, like who they would run of those drivers. Um, you know, I guess, I guess to me, if it's a fund, if it's funded, then you're, then you're, yeah, you're looking at Callum or, or probably Oliver as the guys that they'd have their eye on. Um, you know, Jack and Jack and Connor, unfortunately, just for for their own kind of futures, I feel like haven't really put themselves in the driver's seat in terms of what's going on there. I think those guys are probably both in need of being able to bring some funding to a deal to be able to for sure to get back racing full time. There's no I think I think both of those guys unquestionably are in that situation at this point. Um you know, so there's just not enough seats to go around, unfortunately. Yeah, there's just not. And, you know, and there's always the chance that somebody comes out of the woodwork from somewhere else and, yeah, you know, snakes one of the seats that 
that any of those guys potentially are are in line for. Um, Not even mentioned Enzo Fittipaldi, who's testing with Dale Coyne, or Teo, Teo Porcher, who was talking about uh, IndyCar over the last weekend. Those guys come to mind, and and I, I guess I kind of I I honestly I think for the for like the vacant seats. You know, I think I think Coin potentially could go for. I mean, they've taken flyers on guys like that a number of times. So, so that that could be a landing spot for somebody like that for sure. Um, I guess I I don't really think that the Foyt seats or the Andretti seat really really strike me as landing spots for guys, especially if they're not bringing bringing some budget. Um, I just. They don't, they don't seem like they need to do that basically. Um, you know, that, that kind of goes at least, at least that in my mind kind of goes a little bit against what they, what they tend to do. So yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see is a couple of dominoes that still are kind of yet to fall. Like I said, I think the Peterson one is, you know, whether, whether they lock in that he's going to stay or, or can, I guess, quickly come to some kind of arrangement where he doesn't, I don't, I, I guess I'm not sure that I, I, I think the, the former of those two is more likely. Um, if like, if we we're expecting something to happen within the next few weeks, I don't, I don't think him, him ending up out of that seat is going to happen quick, but yeah. So we'll just kind of have to wait and see. Well, the race's uh, unbiased coverage uh, can be called into question. If you want to get me some, JL Hildebrand campaign merch for <laughs> full time IndyCar seat. All right. I'm talking badges. I'm talking mugs. I'm talking. I like it. Cozies. I'm talking t shirts. Bone finger. I'll get you. I'll get you the full kit, Jack. Yeah, man. On that happy note, we should probably call it a day. Make sure you head to thehyphenrace.com for loads and loads and loads of content regarding uh, Roman Grosjean and uh, his kind of journey through uh, Colin Andretti and and Huncos uh, with this announcement and over the previous weeks. You can head to our YouTube channel to watch that Roman Grosjean video that I mentioned. And you, you can also flick through our back catalogue of podcast episodes. We've had quite a few episodes since the season's finished. So if you've kind of switched off from IndyCar a little bit after the season finished, then go back and listen to some of our episodes. We did a top 10 ranking of the drivers of the season. We had an interview with the IndyNex champion, Christian Rasmussen, who's since grabbed a seat at Ed Carpenter, at least part-time uh, for the road and street circuits. And yeah, we did a, a really good interview with Marcus Ericsson about his switch to Andretti and uh, talking about his season in a little more detail. So that was really cool. You can go back and listen to all of those wherever you get your podcasts. For now, that's all for this week's episode of the Race IndyCar Podcast. The Athletic.